episode of Pop Culture Double Date. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus, but we've come back this week and we all found some time to watch Spider-Man Far From Home, the next film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, yeah, so I'm joined tonight by my usual crew of Gerald, Anager, and Maggie. Can you guys all say hello? Hello. Hi. Hello. Um... So, yeah, we went to see Spider-Man Far From Home. I think Spider-Man Far From Home is supposed to be the capstone on Phase 3 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Not that that really means anything in any <laughs> like in any capacity. It's just the ongoing sort of Marvel series of films. Um, yeah, and so this film is about basically Peter Parker, who has come back to life after the snap after the events of Avengers Endgame he is reintegrating back into school life and they have an international trip planned and the film is basically about Peter wrestling with um, being a normal school kid and being a superhero and trying to basically understand whether it, like I guess trying to understand his responsibility and his sense of guilt that he feels, the sense of responsibility that he has that he kind of feels like Tony Stark has sort of imposed on him. Um, yeah, like it's it's in, in many ways, I feel like this is a sort of a high school film, a coming of age film. Um, and then it's wrapped up, obviously, in superhero shenanigans as well. We have Jake Gyllenhaal, who plays Mysterio. Um, just at this point, we should say this is going to be a full spoilers podcast, so you should switch off or, yeah, you should switch off and come back to us if you don't want spoilers or if you haven't seen the film. If you have seen the film, stay, stay on, and we'll keep talking about things. So, okay, so, you, you know, we have Jake Gyllenhaal, who's Mysterio, we have Nick Fury, who's involved in this film as well, and Peter's interactions with them as he goes on this school trip and tries to basically confess to his... Um, to a girl that, a crush that he has, essentially, right? So, um, yeah, so let's go around the table quickly with our impressions and whether we think this was a decent film, whether we would recommend this as a film. Um, Andrew, do you want to kick off this week? Oh, I really shouldn't, but look, I didn't like the film and I wouldn't recommend it. I'm yeah. sorry to say. I know the rest of you guys probably did, so you yeah. can make up for it. I found it really childish and Scooby-Doo-ish and yeah. just not that funny. Um, I think this whole reluctant hero thing, it's just too late to still be playing at that uh, Spider-Man. Like, you've already gone through the whole Avengers plot. You can't still be the reluctant hero. Um, the faceless villains, we had to put up with for a whole hour now i know that they were the decoy but for a whole hour they were faceless elementals just blobs made out of the different elements that we just had to watch and that was that was an annoying waste of time and the real villain mysterio <laughs> the, real, <laughs> the real villain mysterio was really cartoonish didn't seem very threatening and his power was the power of illusion so it wasn't even something real um i did like mj but that's about all I can uh, say. Okay, okay. Um, Jerry, do you want to shoot next? Look, yeah, I thought the movie was fine until the very end and we got the first stinger and I felt really cheated because then I understood that this movie was just the setup for a much better and more interesting movie. 
when Mysterio outs Peter Parker as Spider-Man and rev- and tells the world that it was Spider-Man who issued the execution order that inflicted all manner of chaos and damage on London, I thought, well, this is the premise of a much better film than the film that we got, as a result of which the experience of watching Far From Home as a whole was diminished, which is not to say that there weren't fun elements there. There certainly were. And, you know, watching um, Ned, um, Peter Parker's best friend, and, um, and co-conspirator was fun. But, as a, but the, the, the fact that we were cheated of a much better film and much better and more interesting story um, left a sour taste in my mouth. So whilst I would recommend it, I would suggest that people go in appreciating that this really is more of a table-setting chapter than a satisfying standalone story. And so um, if we're going to get a good Spider-Man story, it's likely to be in the next installment rather than in this one. Mm, okay. Mags, do you want to shoot next? <laughs> yeah. Um, look, listening to what Gerald just said, that kind of makes sense now. And um, that would also explain my sense of disappointment with the film a little bit. Um, overall, I thought it was quite an enjoyable, feel-good movie. I agree with Darren's um, characterization of it as a as a bit of a teen movie, um, and it was definitely a lot more down to earth in terms of villains um, and action compared to the other Avengers movie. Um, and for me, the best part about the movie was more about the character relationships rather than the action itself, which was quite disappointing. Um, and similar to Adager, I found the story to be quite disjointed and and two dimensional. So. If anything, what I really enjoyed was more the kind of fun banter of um, Peter Parker and the other characters. Um, so interesting for this to be the beginning of the next phase. Mm. Would you recommend this film, Mags? Uh, if you had nothing better to do on a Saturday afternoon, yeah. Mm. Okay, wow. So everybody's kind of had pretty tepid responses to this film, like, I, I like this film, actually, like, I, I didn't think this was, uh, I, I didn't think this was a bad film at all, I felt it was a teen movie, like, for me, it felt like a teen movie, it felt a little bit like, um, just, like, it, yes, the story was not particularly, sort of, it didn't have particularly huge stakes, but, I mean, the premise of it was basically a bunch of kids going on a school vacation, so, yeah, like, I, I, I felt like it was the next in... Like, Marvel's had this sort of habit of genre mashing, right? Mashing, like, Civil War is... Um, not Civil War, the one... Winter Soldier is a great example of that. It's like a thriller mashed with a superhero film, right? And I felt like this was, like, Marvel trying to do teen movie mashed with a superhero film, right? I know they kind of did that with Homecoming as well, but for me, this felt like much more of a classic sort of teen vacation-style film. Um, and to be honest, it was those elements that I enjoyed the most. Um, I, I didn't really mind mysterious... Like, I, I can kind of understand what where people are coming from when they say that the pacing of this film is a little bit weird, and because, yeah, like, the whole Elementals um, as a villain, it was just... Like, the whole superhero sequence for the first half of this film was a little bit strange. It, it felt... It didn't really feel like it had weight... 
in some ways, even though it was, it did feel like the threat seemed quite significant, but for whatever reason, it didn't really seem like it had weight. It was just like it just had Mysterio running around, and then Nick Fury didn't really seem like he knew what he was doing. It was a bit weird there, but um, yeah, I, to be honest, I, I main, as I said, I mainly enjoy this film because I, I really enjoyed the character interactions. I thought that the cast was really, really well cast, and I think, honestly, like, I like this film because Tom Holland is super likable, and Zendaya is super likable as well, and I was really rooting for them. I, as a teen sort of romance story, I loved it. I thought it was great. So, yeah, I, I, I like this film. Um, I think there were sort of weird follow-ons, like weird effects for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as Gerald said, um, that basically come from the stingers. I don't know if you guys... Did you guys stick around for the second stinger? Yeah. No, the second stinger? Yeah, the second stinger, which reveals that Nick Fury, who is really dumb through this movie, and so makes one question, oh, was that the why second is stinger? Nick Fury so dumb? Turns out he's a, he's he's the scroll from um, Captain Marvel. Yeah, was that, that was just weird. Yeah, like for me, like in some ways, it like it made more sense because I was like, Nick Fury doesn't really seem particularly on his game in this film. And then, like, at the end of the film, it's like, oh, it's not really Nick Fury. I was like, yeah, okay, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah but why? I, guess. But why? <laughs> I feel like they needed to throw in a little bit of, um, you know, for the, the for the fans who are expecting something a bit more interstellar or a bit more fantastical, they needed to throw that bit in. Mm. That's what I feel like it was. Yeah. Look, at, at the end of the day, I would recommend this film, and I do feel like they were trying, right? I, I, I genuinely felt like with the story, they were trying. I, I felt like, potentially, they were trying a little bit too hard. I, I, look, I mean, so that's kind of my impression, so let's kind of move on to kind of, like, things that we picked up in this film, right? So, like, for me, I, I definitely felt like, if with the villains, with that whole Nick Fury reveal, with even Peter Parker's sort of in a journey, right? Like, thematically, I definitely felt like these writers were trying to build in this idea of illusion and misdirection and basically that, like, you know, the you have to find your own true path and that sort of thing, right? Which is, like, very teen movie. It, you know, homilies and sort of, like, motherhood statements and that sort of thing. Like, it is a little bit of that, but, you know, you can definitely feel that layered through this film is this these sort of ideas of illusion and misdirection and all this type of stuff, right? Like, with the villain, and then, obviously, with Nick Fury, and, um, yeah, so, look, I, I definitely felt like they were trying, but, uh, like, uh, potentially, maybe, like, given, like, everyone else's reaction to that, because they probably were trying a little bit too hard, and it didn't quite land, so, yeah, but uh, I, I felt like it was, I felt like the heart of this film was in a good place. I don't, I don't know if... Yeah. if Look, the movie had potentially interesting things to say about interesting topics because um, the, the the notion of a villain who is an illusionist and uses drones to conjure illusions in order to fool people and then ultimately concludes by dropping some fake news on the world, um, that's interesting. That's very much in keeping with the fact that we are in the middle of the Trump era. We are in the middle of, you know, Russian hackers... Uh, dropping fake news on Facebook on, and on other social media networks. I mean, fake news is topical. And on top of that, um, Jake Gyllenhaal plays uh, Mysterio as this prima donna film director creating big CGI spectacles. So there's, all, there's a sort of 
self-referential quality mm. about the movie. It's referring to the way that the, the Marvel movies themselves are huge artificial spectacles. And to that extent, you know, hats off. But the, the movie doesn't do, I think, anything particularly interesting with those setups. So um, there are scenes in which Gyllenhaal is quite funny playing the prima donna director, and you can sort of almost imagine, like, a David Fincher or a Michael Mann being as difficult to work for and to work with. Um, and to that extent, yes, that's fun. And, you know, there's a bit of a wink to the whole Hollywood game as it currently is set up. But beyond that, I thought the film didn't have anything particularly interesting to say about illusion, about the fact that so much in our world is susceptible to being uh, turned into illusion or being characterized falsely as illusion. So um, that's one of the, that's, that's, that, that made me feel a bit cheated by the premise of the film. I think something interesting it could have done is try to tell us why illusion is so powerful, whereas it, I think it did the opposite, where the power of illusion didn't seem very powerful because nothing real could really happen to Spider-Man or anyone in that illusion unless they just tripped up themselves, basically. But um, if, they, if they'd kind of showed us why that was such a powerful and potentially... Uh, harmful device that could have been more interesting mm, mm. look yeah I, I do agree with this idea that like look while, while I recognize that it's a theme that they set up I, I do agree that it's not delved into in any particular depth right and to be honest I think it is a function of the fact that this film honestly I think this film is set up as a teen movie like it feels Scooby-Doo. like yeah, <laughs> I, I've probably given it a little bit more credit than Scooby-Doo, but it is like a teen movie. And in the cinema that we went to, it was full of, like, teenagers who were on school holidays, right? And they loved it, right? We had people clapping and hooting throughout this film, and mostly wow. teenagers, right? So I think as, like, a sort of young adult film, it was kind of like Marvel superhero films meet young adult film, mashup style. Like, I felt like that was kind of what it was going for. And I think the reality with is that a lot of these sort of teen movies, they don't really deal with these themes in any particular depth beyond kind of just setting it up and saying, hey, look, that's a theme, right? Like, they don't really have anything particularly interesting to say beyond Does, does can, I, can I push back on that? Because I think all, for at least the last four decades, there have been standout examples of teen movies that have interesting things to say. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a really interesting film about about someone befriending, befriending a deeply broken individual and trying to take him out on a day and show him the world before they go their separate ways as they head off to college. The Breakfast Club is a great film about these misfits, these complete outcasts who are otherwise ostracised in their high school, brought together for this one day in order, and, and an examination of the dynamics between them and the relationships that form. Um, and yes, the, most of these teen films that are particularly quality teen films were John Hughes movies. But you know, you know, you have post John Hughes movies that are quite good as well. Easy A, uh, you know, um, is a fun teen retelling of the Scarlet Letter. Um, and I think I don't think this added much to the teen comedy genre. I think the performers were all very good. I think, like you, Zendaya's rendition of MJ is 
fun and quite interesting because she's so weird and bizarre and into really macabre stuff. And um, she's kind of interested in goth stuff without looking like a goth. So she's fun. Ned is always fun. Ned's relationship, uh, Ned's fling with the, uh, with, I forget the name of the girl, in Europe, that too is quite funny. But I don't think this sort of drove the ball very far in terms of where teen comedies have been and where teen comedies are. I think this was quite formulaic as a teen movie. Um, and so if you, if, you, if you see it in that light, even I don't think it's the finest example of the genre. No, I, I definitely don't believe that it's a, a fine, the finest example of the genre, but I think it's a adequate representation of the genre, right? So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not saying that this is like some sort of masterpiece of teen movie filmmaking, but as a mashup... I thought, as a mashup between a superhero film and a teen film, I thought it was adequate. But I do agree that it doesn't really explore any of these themes in, in any particular depth beyond kind of like raising them multiple times, I guess, right? But it doesn't really have anything, it doesn't really discuss them or like have anything to, interesting to say. So I definitely agree with that. Um, uh, do we? So you touched on Zendaya and like Ned and like MJ and Ned and those characters, right? So let's have a chat about those characters because I actually think that those characters were probably like I felt like the character the characters were probably the strong part of the film, and um, I, I definitely felt that that it wasn't necessarily because of the writing. I, I felt like it was because all the actors were felt so well suited for their roles right I, I, I don't know if the rest of you agree with that but I, I definitely felt like the actors were really well suited to their roles um, and it's for me it was like a little bit surprising because um, I guess you look at these actors like Tom Holland and Zendaya and like you, you see them kind of on the red carpet and they look like adults Essentially, right? And then you you see them being interviewed, and they they kind of look like adults. And then in this film, I don't I don't know if it's like the lack of makeup or the acting, but they genuinely feel like kids. Every one of them genuinely feels like a sixteen year old, even though I know those actors have played characters that are much older than sixteen year olds. But you put them there, and it's like it's not like Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero, where everybody felt like they were like twenty five, right? Like. All of those kids, like, it's one of these rare situations where you have a teen high school movie, and the teen high schoolers are like, man, they, they look and kind of act like high schoolers. And I, I thought that was actually really great. Like, Zendaya in particular, like, for me, Zendaya in particular, I kind of felt like, like, the way she, like, she has kind of this posture that is, like, a little bit, like, sort of tense in the shoulders her shoulders are kind of always up and it, it's like it it's actually quite a sort of um uh, like realistic portrayal of like some uh, like a teenager who's sort of still growing and a little bit awkward and a little bit lanky it, it, it's actually quite amazing given that like she's a big hollywood star right and then on the red carpet she looks like a proper like like, full-grown adult, essentially, right? In this situation, she's able to, like, pull off that illusion really well. And I think that, for me, that's actually, like, my, um, 
my like my comment about the likability of this film is that all of these characters like I felt like they felt like sixteen year olds and that they had this sort of air of innocence about them, which kind of is sometimes rare in these sort of teen movies. And I, I really, really enjoyed that. It was like, man, this is actually, it feels like that this is how teenagers look like and how they kind of behave, right? I, I don't know if you guys felt that as well, but yeah. Teenagers don't behave with an air of innocence. I don't know if you've spoken to any lately, but that, that, is, that is not a representation of teenagers. <laughs> But I, th- I think we can fairly say, though, that because he looks young and because he's so endearing, Tom Holland is far and away the best um, live-action on-screen Spider-Man we've seen. I mean, he's, he's a dork, but Peter Parker is a dork, and his dorkiness stands in contrast to Tobey Maguire's dorkiness because Tobey Maguire looked like, he looked like a 30-year-old, and for him to still be so dorky in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films was just a bit weird because, like, um, at that age, or looking at looking looking the age that he did, you would have expected him to be much more of a fully formed human being than he played in those movies. Andrew Garfield tried to be a nerd, but the thing about Andrew Garfield is because he's so good-looking and he's so obviously cool, it was it was very obvious that he was a cool guy trying very hard pretending to be a nerd and a dork, and it didn't really work, whereas Holland genuinely comes across as the dorky people pe- of um, everyone's, you know, sort of recollection. Mm. So he plays, I think, he plays the role exceedingly well. I don't think Ned ran away with the movie um, quite as much as he did in Homecoming. Like, Ned was sort of the breakout character of of Homecoming. He just came in and stole every scene he was in. He was basically... He was he was very much like the, the Michael Peña character in... Uh, Ant-Man, yeah. In, yeah. Um, yeah. in Ant-Man. He just comes yeah. in in these small doses and he just runs away with these scenes. I don't think he did that quite as much this time around because he was he was a bit he was a bit more sort of sidelined as comic relief, yeah. Than he was yeah. in the Homecoming, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, and so there was there was that sort of you know unbelievable stuff that he he was caught up in in this movie, which is just it's 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 cute to a point and it's funny to a point, but I think they dragged that joke out for just a bit too long. Yeah, um, and Zendaya, Zendaya, as I said, was great as MJ. The problem is that it, the the idea of Peter crushing very hard on MJ was not set up at all in Homecoming because he spends almost all of Homecoming fancying Liz, the Vulture's daughter, and and it's only at the very end that you find out that MJ's name is even MJ. So um, whilst there was, in, whilst the hint was that Zendaya would eventually become the love interest, the fact the fact that she begins this movie as love interest feels a bit weird. It's just not set up at all. Hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I'd, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Because at the end of Homecoming, he doesn't really... Like, he, they don't actively... He doesn't actively switch his interest to MJ at the end of Homecoming, right? And then we have yeah. no scene in the interim, right? Um, so, like, we... But we know that five years has passed, right? But they were both blipped out essentially they were all both gone from the snap so yeah but you're right it, the, it, the the film lacks a bridging scene f- to establish why peter's um i guess affections have shifted 
essentially, right? So, yep. yeah, agreed, agreed, agreed. Um, Mags, do you have anything to add to that or? Um, not really. I mean, the only thing I suppose is, um, well, I totally agree. I think Tom Holland is so likable and he's able to potentially be one of the new lead characters um, to replace the old kind of cabal of um, the core Marvel heroes because of his likability. So in that sense, he's the perfect leading man. Um, and in this movie, he was able to kind of bring together that sense of, I suppose, Captain America's good heart, um, a little bit of um, Iron Man's um, charm um, and wittiness. What I did find a bit weird was um, all of a sudden he's become this kind of um, genius science whiz kid, um, which I think before he was meant to be really into science, but I, I didn't think that he was this kind of um, genius whiz kid. So I felt like they were trying to shoehorn a little bit um, into him being um, Iron Man's successor, that kind of science edge as well, which I thought was a bit unnecessary. Yeah, you're talking specifically about the scene in the plane, right? So at one point in this film, basically, Peter is all beat up, and then Happy picks him up. Happy Hogan, like Tony Stark's friend, picks him up, and they're in Tony Stark's plane, and like Peter basically starts pulling a Tony Stark and builds spider armor for himself, right? You're specifically talking about that, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, I, I agree. I also found that to be a little bit shoehorned in I was like yeah like you guys have kind of already been making the point that Peter is supposed to be Tony's successor we get it he doesn't have to be also like some super genius who's a 16 year old it like it, it felt a little bit like I, I think in the previous film it was established that he was good at academics but it wasn't like he was some sort of super genius, right? And then all of a sudden in this film, he's like doing all this stuff. And there was also like, you know, there are a few jokes that kind of didn't quite land where, you know, when he goes in and they start talking about the multiverse and it was just like, you know, the line and then he starts blabbing on about the multiverse and then all these people are looking at him a little bit and it's like, that has is really cliched, right? That that sort of interaction is a little bit cliched and I, I kind of felt like the writing could have been a little bit more um, refined or subtle, right? Instead of having that sort of thing, yeah. Also, um, can I call bullshit on Peter Parker as Tony Stark's successor? Yeah, what I mean, does that mean? Would, would Tony Stark, in his right mind entrust something as frighteningly powerful as Edith to a 16-year-old kid. Who honestly. barely made it into the Avengers. I mean, Edith, <laughs> Edith is more terrifying and more powerful than the defense system that Tony Stark invented that eventually becomes Ultron. I mean, Edith is truly... Like, Edith is basically what Robert Redford tried to be in uh, Captain America, The Winter Soldier. And that's how that's how terrifying Edith is. Yeah, and is it really believable that Tony Stark, <laughs> someone as smart as Tony Stark, someone as cautious as Tony Stark, someone as genuinely terrified of things as Tony Stark himself was, would entrust something like Edith to a sixteen-year-old? I just found that completely unbelievable. And the notion that that Peter Stark, out of all the remaining heroes, would be uh, the the, the that he would be Stark's successor is just bizarre. I mean, mm. 
one can more readily believe Black Panther stepping up to the plate as the leader mm. of the Avengers than, than Spider-Man. Yeah. I mean, one does not go straight from being friendly, you know, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man to leader of the, the superhero crew in one bound. And yet that is what the film is asking us. To, I thought that was just a bit much. Black Panther is definitely about, more qualified. What do you think about that line, though, where, you know, where just before he makes a horrible mistake to give the Edith glasses to Mysterio, he kind of reinterprets the um, message that Tony Stark left to him as he's trusting him to find the next successor. <laughs> Well, that's what hilarious. That's hilarious because in the same, for the same reasons that Tony wouldn't have trusted him with the actual device, he also wouldn't have trusted him to make the choice as to who should own the device, proved only seconds later by the fact that he hands it over to the villain, right, to some yeah. random that he's known for five minutes, right, when there was a much more qualified Black Man in the room or you know, very close to the room that he could have given it to in Black Panther. Well, I, I guess, look, I mean, the whole Tony successor thing, look, the Edith thing was a little bit weird for me, right? Like, I, I agree with Gerald that the amount of power that is in Edith is freaking ridiculous, right? Like, do you remember, like, you know when they were first talking about, like, he puts on the glasses to be able to hack the phones? I was thinking exactly about, you know the scene in The Dark Knight, when basically <laughs> Batman builds a thing, and then he immediately yes. realises it's too powerful, and he does the right thing by destroying it, right? And that's the heroic yes. moment of The Dark Knight, where the hero realises when too much power is too much, and he goes out of way to take the power from his own hands, right? And it feels really weird that Tony Stark would build this thing, but just kind of keep it around, <laughs> like, and kind of flippantly give it to some guy. Um, so yeah, that was, that was, that was definitely a little bit strange. Um, I, I think the other thing that was, um, yeah, like, the other thing that I couldn't quite wrap my head around was, when did, because Edith is specifically built in the contingency that like in the like when did tony know he was gonna die i don't think tony thought he was gonna die until the very last moment of that fight so how was he able to do all this before peter was even back right <laughs> you think about it peter came back in the snap and then tony sees him in the snap and then die so he must have done this when peter wasn't even around basically with the assumption that peter would come back and that he would die as part of this final battle it was just a little bit like hang on like what what how, how did he have how did he have this level of prescience that this was going to happen to make all these like contingencies like this right it was it was definitely a little bit weird for me can uh, i no, can no. i play devil's advocate i think i think this goes back to uh, the events of the very first avengers movie when tony uh, grabs the Tesseract and flies up into the upper reaches of the atmosphere, ready to sacrifice himself in order to save all of humankind. In Iron Man 3, he deals with the consequence of that, the trauma, and coming face-to-face -face with his own mortality. So I think Tony, more so than almost any of the other superheroes, has a more, has a more, more acute sense of being mortal, certainly more than Captain America, more than Black Panther, etc. And so one can almost see if one squints and turns one's head a bit, how Tony Stark, having come 
face to face with his own mortality, with the very likelihood and possibility of of dying, would create something and call it even dead, under, mm. even dead under him. But um, but yeah, yes, you're right. It's never explained. You, you can you can sort of read it into the line, read it in between the lines, but it's up to the view to um, to supply the explanation of the context. Mm. Look, having look, I, I agree with this idea that Peter doesn't necessarily fit the role of Tony, like Iron Man's successor, specifically in his role as kind of the leader of the Avengers, I guess, right, or one of the leaders of the Avengers. However, I, I do actually feel like that, um, like Peter is Tony's protege in some ways, right? Like, yes, that to- Tony is his mentor, and I. Like, so in the sense of like setting him up as the protege and like the protege feeling the weight of responsibility of the mentor, I I can kind of see that. And to be honest, I think both of the Spider-Man films have specifically been building this because if you think about it, the primary antagonists of both Spider-Man films have basically been the like the ghosts of Tony Stark's past, right? Like, the Vulture was someone that felt like he had been wronged by Tony Stark, right? That, you know, Stark had done something to take business, his livelihood away from him, essentially. And similarly, in this film, um, Mysterio is... or Mysterio, I think, can fairly be said, even though Jake Gyllenhaal is the face of Mysterio, I think the implication is that Mysterio is the entire special effects team. Right, so Mysterio lives on, even though Jake Gyllenhaal's Quentin Beck character potentially is dead. Unclear, right? But like, but that team basically all got slighted by Tony Stark. So in the sense that, like, Peter is dealing actively dealing with the ghosts of Tony Stark's past. I, I think they actively like they're doing that, right? Like in the action of the film, this this is actually what is happening, right? Like Tony was not a perfect and. Look, to be honest, I think this was, for me, this was the bit of the film that resonated the most, right? Where this idea that, like, in Peter's mind, Tony was like some sort of hero, superhero, but the reality is that Tony Stark was not a perfect person. And the practical reality of the film is Peter dealing with the fact that Tony was not a perfect person through these people that arose because Tony was such a prick to them, essentially, right? I mean, fine, they may have been mentally unstable or morally and ethically (laughs) compromised to start with, but they were kind of, the implication is that they were pushed over the edge because Iron Man was such an arrogant sort of know-it-all, essentially, right? Like, he's an arrogant prick. Which we know Tony Stark is that character, but like Peter Parker as Tony's protege has to deal with those people and at the same time deal with um, this, so deal with the responsibility that Tony has given him, but also um, realize that Tony was a real man with like failures, etc. Right? So I thought that was that was good, but I don't necessarily like. I don't necessarily buy into this idea that Peter is going to take over Tony's role specifically in the Avengers, right? But I do feel that Peter is Tony's protege. And I, I do feel like they've set that up well. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, okay. Is there, is there anything else we want to talk about regarding this film? Jory? Um, yeah, uh, just a trivial observation. Um when this 
incarnation of Spider-Man first appeared in Captain America Civil War, the, the writers of the, that movie seeded a joke. Um, Marissa Tomei as Aunt May was unusually attractive. There is actually a moment when Tony Stark says to Peter Parker, I've just been talking to your unusually attractive aunt. And and what what's funny is that in, with each with each version of Aunt May, they felt the need to put Marissa Tomei in increasingly daggy, um, just to, just just because I think they've they, they, they sort of like figured out that Marissa Tomei looks very good at 54 and it's just completely, it's just it's asking too much for us to, to believe it, so we've got to put her in daggy clothes because otherwise it doesn't fit everyone's idea of Aunt May. And I thought that was just really weird. And the romance between Aunt May and Happy Hogan, like, where did that come from? Yeah, that was that was weird. <laughs> that was weird. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, in terms of other things that we've noticed in the film as well, then, like, how did you guys feel like that transition between Endgame and this film? Like, because at the beginning, the, the opening of this film, look, I liked it. I liked it, right? I really liked it. Like, oh. when they where they show the school video, I thought mm-hmm. that was hilarious. I, I really enjoyed it, especially when they had the video of the blip, and basically you saw the band disappearing after the snap, and then you see basically five years later they're taking a video of the basketball game, and then the band basically blips back into existence and the basketball players run into the band members. I thought that was like, I enjoyed that. It was kind of, it was kind of cool. And like the, the camera work was really shoddy and like sort of student like, I liked it. I, I don't know. How did you guys think that think of, what did you guys think about that as a, like uh, sort of uh, as a device to kind of, um, to like sort of for plot exposition essentially i thought it set the the cringy tone of the whole movie the (laughs) you know the 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 tribute the tribute part i thought was really cringy and i didn't like for the avengers to be followed up by that cringe cringe it just yeah yeah, i didn't like it okay okay sorry So you didn't like it because it was tacky, cringy, or it was tacky. The other stuff about the basketball court that was fine. Like that, yeah, yeah. that isn't that is in line with the rest of the movie, and it's fine. But the the actual tribute to these people, I don't think we needed that in this movie. This movie is too childish and yeah. too cheesy to to do that. Well, I actually thought it was part of the cheesiness. Like it was very <laughs> deliberate because of the because it was self reverential. Um, and you had, you know, Mysterio character who took himself a bit too seriously, and then you've got the kids who obviously took um, the blip and then the um, the changes quite seriously too. Especially the change of the nerdy, pimply young Asian dude to being the tall, hot, nice rival for um, for Peter Parker for MJ's hand. So I I thought it kind of fit with the tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, the other thing with the blip was that there are, like, they kind of, like, sort of touch on some of the sort of major issues that would arise if half the population of the Earth disappeared for five years, and then they kind of just gloss over it without really talking about it anymore. Yeah. yeah. Like, specific... It's a really, like, like, dust thing. I mean, can you imagine just how traumatic it would be 
if people who disappeared five years ago and whom you thought were dead and gone forever suddenly turn up again. But, and just how yeah. discombobulating and dislocating that would be. And, and it's just like, oh, well, shrug of shoulders, let's go on with uh, our summer vacation. Well, more, like, specifically Aunt May in that town hall meeting that where Spider-Man is doing the autographs and the interview and stuff like that, she talks about how she comes back and she's in her house and someone else has bought her house, right? And that in itself is like sort of is like, wow, this is like a huge deal. You think about the legal ramifications, the property rights, like what ramifications. Of, exactly, what right? About, all, all of this, right? partner's moved on. Like yeah. Families where, like, the dad's gone, the mum's now moved on, there's a new dad in the house, and the old dad comes back. Yeah. <laughs> so they kind of touch on that, and then they kind of just, like, switch immediately to teen film mode, which I felt was, like, look, tonally, I thought it was okay because this film was not about dealing with those heavy issues and discussing them but it just kind of like for me anyway like i didn't really think much of it when i was watching the film but afterwards today when i was just walking around i was like hang on there's like so much like they kind of touched on that and there's all this other shit that would have happened and it's just not (laughs) talked about at all yeah okay like maybe in the next film or like maybe in another Marvel film, they talk they'll talk about that, right? Maybe in the Hawkeye standalone film, which will probably be more serious, they'll talk about that. But I don't know. Like definitely tonally, it wouldn't have fit in with like to discuss those things in this film. But yeah. Um. Okay. So look, I mean, the last thing I'll kind of say about this film is that, like, I so I. Did you guys enjoy the romance between Peter Parker and MJ? Yes. Yeah, I, I would. Because it's, it's it's not so conventional because MJ is so interesting. Yes, and I, I think like I really enjoyed how awkward it was that like they weren't experienced like the way they kind of kiss each other on that bridge and like the way they hold hands and stuff. It was I felt it was very like. For, Maybe it's just me, right? Maybe I'm, like, a very, like, (laughs) innocent person, right? But I I felt like it was really sweet and really touching. And, um, like, it kind of... Like, for me, it kind of... There was was a true note there in the sense that, like, this... I I think the chemistry between Zendaya and Tom Holland is really, really strong. So it's kind of like when they kind of confess to each other and both of them kind of like realize that the other person likes them as well. There's this like really touching moment that I I think a lot of us can kind of identify with in a really, in a real way of like that sort of the joy when you kind of realize the other person feels the same way, right? I, I really felt like... Though that moment was really well captured in this film. Like, it, for me, that was kind of like the highlight of this film. Like, the way they were able to capture that sort of, um, that sort of initial, like, blossom, right? So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if anybody else mm. felt that, but I, I definitely did. Anyway. <laughs> no, no, I think, I think that's right. I think the, the only bum note, if there was one in the entire story of MJ and Peter Parker in this movie, um, MJ spots that Peter Parker is Spider-Man because the clues are so obvious. And um, 
And the fact that no one else has figured it out um, depends on you believing that everyone around Peter Parker is a complete idiot. Um, and I just thought that was that was I, I thought that was a bit jarring. It was not a major issue, but it was just it was just weird. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess she says that she wasn't one hundred percent sure. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um. Okay. Well, I think. Is there anything else we really want to add to this? To this? No. Yeah. Okay. Well, look. Thanks so much for joining me tonight to talk about Spider-Man: Far From Home. Um. We'll probably be back in a couple of weeks. I, I think the next film we'll watch is probably Hobbs and Shaw: Fast and the Furious, a Gerald special. Would would, would that be accurate, Jerry? Are we going to talk about Hobbs and Shaw? <laughs> we, well, we yeah, are, I think we, we, we will. Sure. I, I will have watched The Lion King about ten times before then, but oh, I don't uh, expect you guys to. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, we'll take this offline and discuss what we're going to watch next. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. But um, yeah, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us, and um, we'll see you all next week. Say bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Ciao.